Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Michael Keynes, an editor from the TLS, is here with me. Michael, you are doing stalwart duty, standing in for Lucy. Will I ask you a question about gardens? Oh, you're asking a question about gardens? Yeah, that's what generally Lucy and I chat about. Well, hello, Alex. And I must confess, that's going to be a bit of a problem. Okay, let's talk instead about love. Thank God. Uh, okay. It is Valentine's Day as we yes. record this podcast. Yes. Sorry for those of you who are listening at a later date and catching up, but it is uh, Valentine's Day. But we we don't really deal with that kind of commercial sort of shenanigans here, or do we? I've got to confess, looking at this week's paper, there's not a huge amount of love in it. There's a lot of strife. There's an awful lot of strife. A lot of strife. There? There's a lot of tough guyness. Yeah. There's a big piece about James Elroy, which we'll be talking about later. And there's also Blake Morrison's memoir, isn't there? And that put me in mind of a recent conversation I've noted in the literary pages and elsewhere about the sort of duty of care that publishers might need to exercise towards memoirists. I mean, it sort of started with Prince Harry, hasn't it? Yes. And his extremely lay everything bare memoir but I don't know what do you think about that I mean my instant thought is just that you know when you're a memoirist you you sort of know the territory that you're getting into but I wonder if that's I'm writing that potential damage that a writer can feel off too easily I mean this really shows up the difference doesn't it between the work as you conceive it and telling your story or someone's life story and that process of it entering the public domain and it has to go through a legal read and somebody else will say well I don't believe this or I don't believe that and I've thought about this quite a lot over the past couple of years because I'm a judge on a memoir prize the Ackley prize and it's come up quite a few times where for example a memoirist remembers reams of dialogue and someone will say, I don't really believe they noted down everything that was being said to them when they were a kid. Or maybe they do. I don't know, because I have no plans of going anywhere near this territory, Alex. I don't know about you. I think it is certainly sort of, you know, writer beware. But I mean, that business of people recalling dialogue and incidents in pellucid detail, apparently, from years mm. previously. I mean, we as readers enter in that contract, don't we? We know that that's not true. Sometimes, of course, particular lines from deeply affecting events do come into your mind and you do feel that you remember them you don't know whether you do with absolute certainty but we as readers know that there's a degree of fictionalization in all biographies surely I think there's that isn't there because anything that proceeds with an almost novelistic degree of here's a summary and here's a scene and here's a summary and here's a theme it's following that kind of logic isn't it if there are details I'm picking out it's being fictionalized just in the act of of writing but you know and certain details may be put in in a sort of protective spirit you know things are maybe are adjusted a little so maybe we should distrust memoir even as we read it because we're interested in I don't know finding out the truth about someone like Prince Harry well exactly tell me a little bit about your experience of judging this prize I mean it's a wonderful prize amazingly because we do have a canine theme throughout yes, this podcast yes we have <laughs> we really have a J.R. Ackley was absolutely you know known for his relationship with his dog wasn't he that's very good Alex and of course J.R. Ackley for anyone who doesn't know about J.R. Ackley his memoir my father and myself totally amazing book totally wonderful not much of the dogs in it but of course he did write a lot about the tulip etc elsewhere 
And I've found, you know, I've only been judging Yackley for a couple of years, but it seems to me that it's picked some really extraordinary books, you know, going back for a couple of decades. Those will maybe stand the test of time. I don't know if that's really the criterion, the ultimate criterion. It's just the ones really that strike a small set of judges at the time as being the best out of that particular bunch. But it seems to me that it comes up quite repeatedly, this question. I mean, I think you started by talking about duty of care, and I think that's an aspect of it. And the question of artificiality as well is, can you trust what you're actually reading or trust it maybe to be a construct and a reflection of the author's mind? And that's interesting in itself. Yes, it seems to me that the memoirs that really strike you in the gut, and that's often what happens, are ones where there is such a particularity of, you know, people evoke the particularities of their life, their relationships the dynamics between perhaps family members, they're often family members, with such vividness. But there is a kind of universality. You feel their emotion, you feel the situation that they've been in. But there has to be something at stake, doesn't there? And for there to be something at stake, that does require revelation and a certain amount, of, as I said earlier, laying bare. Yes, that's it, isn't it? There's got to be a, a drama in there, and particularly if it's about family, which it so often is, there's sort of risks involved, aren't there? I wouldn't want you to reveal the secrets of the judging room, but how is Prince Harry faring in the current <laughs> submission state? Oh, it's it's revealing a deep rift between the, the royalists and, and we Republicans. Oh yes, the battle will be fought out <laughs> over the coming months as we reach towards the ultimate shortlist lie on the wall I mean talk about laying bare we'd love to see the secrets I think of some jury rooms in prize judging meetings just to go back to dogs <laughs> to tell you what I've been up to I had a wonderful experience interviewing the writer Sebastian Barry and I conducted pretty much the whole interview which was lengthy and detailed and wonderful his new book Old God's Time is absolutely fantastic but I had one of his four dogs on my lap throughout. He, he oh. said to me as the little dog bandit was the smallest. He's got one of his dogs is very, very large. And that would have been less comfortable and amenable to conducting a serious literary interview. But he did say to me, do you mind? And I thought, no, I'm going to put it as a rider in all interviews. Now I've got to have a little dog. It was very, very relaxing and comforting. Must have a dog. There. This is just the moment to give a nod. Do you think we should give a nod to the director of the German ballet company who responded to his critic in a very particular violent and dog-related way. Well, yes, I think we should, but I would say, you know, a nod is one thing. I'm, I would give that particular art maker a wide berth. Yes, it's one of those, isn't it? Yes. I know that there's a former editor on the CLS who certainly had people come up to him at literary events and say, oh, I just wanted to see what you look like in a sinister way, suggesting that something had been interpreted as a disobliging comment and vengeance might one day come down the line now that they'd sized them up. But I don't think I can think of a time when this exactly had happened. There's vengeance and there's vengeance and then there's the Hanover State Opera uh, <laughs> whose ballet director and choreographer Marco Gurka has just been suspended for reacting to a dance critic's, as you might say, disobliging review by producing from his pocket one of those, I think, what do we call them? Poop bags, I suppose, that had just been filled by his little dachshund and smearing it on her face, which, of course, has an element of sort of farce, we must say, about it. Just that idea it sounds like something from a particularly horrible scatological movie, but is in fact 
a really horrible, transgressive thing to do to a critic. I mean, to anybody, obviously, but to somebody who just haven't liked what they write. It, but I thought it was kind of really horrifying. Yes, I think the critic in question just clearly drove him completely mad. She did say that his latest work made her feel both. I think was it feel both insane and killed by boredom was the phrase. <laughs> it wasn't a, a good review, let's say that. But I mean, it's an interesting uh, moment, shall we say, of criticism that this should happen. And obviously it's become a police matter and all the rest. And he's been suspended. So there's a warning there too of people thinking of taking revenge on their critics. Yes, but it is a warning that we must absolutely ignore, isn't it? I mean, you know, you can't have I mean, the TLS is a paper with an enormous heritage and history that has thrived and flourished through criticism. I mean, that is what it what it is. If no criticism, no TLS and no many other newspapers, no literary culture. I totally agree, but I am going to go to publishers in the future and say just this author, this particular author, do they own any pets? Well, quite. More dogs to come, but we should move on to that now. Coming up on this week's show, Michael chats to Tom Seymour Evans about a new biography of the crime writer James Elroy. And Alex talks to Stephen March about a subject that is dear to our hearts, writing and failure. But first, James Elroy, the author of crime novels such as The Black Dahlia, L.A. Confidential and last year's Widespread Panic, that James Elroy has a thing about dogs. We're told by a well-placed source, by which I mean a TLS reviewer, that Elroy is liable to pant, growl, or raise his hands like paws. And dog talk, boastful, overbearing, often obscene, is a mainstay of his persona as the demon dog of crime fiction. If you didn't already know much about Elroy's canine fixation, or much of anything about this great American crime writer, for many people, one of the great American crime writers, you can read all about it in this week's TLS, in which Tom Seymour Evans has reviewed Stephen Powell's book Love Me Fierce in Danger, the first biography of Elroy, though surely not the last. Tom joins us now to talk about the life, the works, and that thing about dogs. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. Hello. Perhaps we can begin with that particular obsession because it's connected to what James Elroy endured as a child, isn't it? Um, it wasn't exactly an ideal start in life. Yeah. So the first dog, like I say in the review, was a dog called Minna, who was given to him by his mother, Jean Elroy, who'd been born Jean Hilliker. And shortly after Elroy was given this dog by his mum, his mum was very brutally murdered. And that was really one of the defining events of Elroy's childhood and also one of the events that shaped the rest of his life and writing. So Minna was the first of the dogs, but there have been several others, several real ones, several imaginary ones. He was talking recently in an interview about his kind of whole pound of imaginary dogs that he lives with. And at the root of it, really, I mean, besides this kind of biographical significance of the dog, I think at the root of it is a self-perception, a self-identification with mm -hmm. dogs as kind of uh, slightly outside of human society, as related to it and maybe shaped by it, but also, you know, unbound and animalistic. And this is a big part of the way in which he presents himself in his public persona. So he kind of grew up with that deep down in his sort of psyche is sort of the making of him and the death of his mother which is obviously just awful in itself thrusts him into the hands of his father where you have more dogs and more kind of dodginess 
Yeah, absolutely. So his father, who El Rey admired enormously when he was a young child and really wanted to live with and much preferred to his mother to a really uncomfortable degree, to the degree that when his mother was killed, he expresses having felt a kind of gratitude for it, being released into this life with his father. But his father, El Rey, quickly came to realise once he was living with him full time after his mother's murder was a much more problematic figure than he thought. He was a serial liar. And a lot of the stories that Elroy's father, Armand, had told to him in his early childhood, Elroy learned to doubt once he reached his teens. And Armand Elroy had also, though he'd had some success as a kind of a bit part player in Hollywood history, as a business manager to Rita Hayworth, by the time Elroy was living with him, had really lost that and was mainly involved in various kind of get-rich-quick schemes and fantasizing, really, I think, about the time that he had spent kind of on the margins of Hollywood. There's a real flavour of the books to come in that story that I think you mentioned in the review. But before we get on to the writing, I mean, obviously things don't, don't get better having been so bad for so long for him. I mean, it sounds like the Nadir involves petty crime and sort of uh, obviously addiction and what he calls later he later calls his nazi act and what do you make of this dark time and how really bad does it get it gets pretty bad and yet i think one of the most troubling parts of it especially kind of in relation to his later work is what he calls his nazi act i mean the key context here is which may surprise some people who are not familiar with uh, californian history is that nazism plays a big part in west coast politics throughout the mid-20th century and so elroy is as this kind of outcast is drawn to various kind of far-right figures who were quite active in Los Angeles at the time. He visits this kind of the enclave of the American Nazi party in Burbank, goes to Nazi rallies. So yeah, like I say in the review, with Nazi acts like these, who needs Nazis? It seems like quite a committed and energetic participation in the far-right for several years of this most difficult period of his teens. I mean, I've heard Elroy talking at a literary festival and he did have this incredible control over the audience. It was totally mesmerising. Of course, we're a bunch of kind of, I don't know, middle class Brits sitting before this guy who seems to have lived it all and can write about it all. It was quite an impressive act. But I think one thing I certainly learned from your review is quite scarily, he's kind of learned that from his time on that scene, so to speak. You mentioned Gerald L. K. Smith, the leader of the America First Party, and he learned some from him. He was sort of almost learning without really knowing he was doing that. I thought that that was one of the most striking things about the way in which this period is described in Hal's biography. He says he did learn a thing or two from Gerald L. K. Smith of the America First Party, yeah, this white supremacist party. Yeah, it's always hard to tell with Elroy. I think he enjoys causing controversy and provoking so much that there's such a knowing provocation in a claim like that, like he did learn mm. a thing or two, but it's there in his biography and doubtless there was some kind of influence. And certainly as a young man, he seems like he was very drawn to these figures, these kind of charismatic figures. I've never seen him live. So it's, it's interesting that you felt like he has this reputation for really being able to capture audiences. But I think quite often in the recordings of him, it doesn't quite come across. So it's interesting that it was, the skill was, was there and active when you saw him. Yeah, that's interesting because I like reading the interviews with him. You know, I can, they usually come with a picture of him with, I don't know, a dog or him talking about, yeah. he puts on classical music at full blast while writing something quite, you know, out there like that, at least for, compared to other writers. But I know that there's a real turning point for him, which I think you capture very, very nicely. I mean, what really changes and 
how does he come to start writing after all this? He had been in and out of the Los Angeles prison system for several years. He had gone through various periods of addictions to alcohol, most notably, but also to all sorts of barbiturates and amphetamines. And he had eventually turned up in the court of a judge who had seen him several times before, who said that they were sick of seeing him in my court. And they offered him either six months in the LA County Jail or three in a Salvation Army mission. And he took the three months. And there in the mission, he was put on antabuse, which was prescribed at the time for alcoholics, which induces a violent adverse reaction to alcohol. And he began his first stint of sobriety. And during that, he began working on, on his first novel. For a long time, he'd said to most people he met that he was going to be a great writer. So this isn't a conversion to interest in novels, but it's it's uh-huh. a kind of a point at which he decides to really start trying. And there's a nice kind of setting for this first attempt because he's working as a caddy at the Hillcrest Country Club. And all the caddies from that country club are put up in this um at the Westwood Hotel, this accommodation block. And one evening he claims he stood up by the sideboard in this hotel room and just started writing on top of it. And he wrote then pretty frantically until he'd reached the end of that first novel. That's fantastic. So he already had that kind of self-belief that he would do this, which I think you communicate really well in the piece. But let's talk about the writing. I mean, it didn't immediately fall into place for him, did it? I mean, Tom, looking at those early works, what do you make of them? How did the writing style evolve? What was the initial kind of setup for him? I think there's a germ in those early works of the kind of style that he later becomes famous for. It's very clear that when he was writing his first book, which was published as Brown's Requiem in 1981, though he wanted to be called Concerto for Orchestra, slightly, like you say, he's kind of obsessed with classical music and also maybe already visible there is some kind of ambition for writing fiction that's not confined by genre. When he was writing that work, he very consciously imitated Raymond Chandler. He thought that Raymond Chandler was an easy writer to imitate and to develop a successful prose style. And so you can you can see the beginnings of this much more staccato, kind of exaggerated or distilled Chandlerian prose that he would become famous for several books later. I think the main development it strikes me in in his writing between those early first couple of novels which are kind of released as genre novels and the later ones is the way in which his sense of plot develops it really thickens and he begins to pursue multiple plot lines in these much more complex baroque kind of stories and while still maintaining this in most of his books this total focus on chronological order so you have lots of plot lines weaving in and out of each other and that's that's a major progression I think in his work that takes him away from these more traditionally structured crime novels towards these broader more complex historical fictions. That's interesting is that there's often this movement in conventionally I mean broadly in crime fiction to kind of go backwards you know you have I don't know an initial setup it's interesting you're taken into the story behind it there might be flashbacks etc and he's actually as a writer he's not so interested in that this is almost like a present history he's creating And it's going deeper all the time into great conspiracies and, uh, you know, the darkness that sort of lies beneath this surface. But the writing style also evolved for pragmatic reasons, I I now see. Yes, when he was working on LA Confidential in the late 80s, he ended up with a manuscript that was over 800 pages long with eight plot lines that he considered to be inextricably linked and I think about 80 characters. And... When his agent, Nat Sobel, told his editors at at Warner 
that he'd produced a manuscript of this length, they made it clear that they needed 25% of it gone. And the expectation, I think, was that he would cut certain characters or scenes, but he was certain that he needed to maintain everything he had in order to keep the novel's integrity. And so instead, with Sorbel to begin with, and then by himself, he cut individual words and he cut adjectives and, and adverbs and conjunctions. And all of those things went in order that the story itself could maintain its integrity. And out of that emerged this very staccato style, um, very short sentences, highly nounal, that really made him famous. Now you call, I don't know if it's the place to place to start for any listeners who haven't read any Elroy yet, but you call the Underworld USA trilogy his best work. That's American tabloid and uh, it's the cold 6,000, isn't it? And what's the, what's the other one? Bloods are over. Why is that the best work to you? For a couple of reasons, I'm really drawn to his kind of vision of American history as involving figures who we know who turn out actually to be these kind of stooges or mythical figureheads for another history that is playing out that is far less familiar. So there's a line, I think, at the beginning of American Tabloid, where there's a direct address prologue where he says Jack Kennedy was a mythological frontman for a particularly juicy slice of our history. And that's a typically Elroyan thing, this kind of suggestion that the history we thought we knew is actually this kind of pasteboard facade. And behind that is the actual flesh and juice of events. And that, to me, I think is a very, I think Elroy gets a lot of fun and energy from that and offers kind of interesting beasters across the American mid-century using it. Because I can see you mentioned the Wolf Hall trilogy as well, you know, the Hilary Mantel trilogy set in Tudor England. I can see a, a parallel in sort of cutting away the ground beneath your feet. You know, you think you knew that period. And whether it makes good history, it's good fiction. It's really exciting fiction. Yeah, exactly. And I think both of them have this attention to the way in which history, as much as it's forged by a more familiar kind of bureaucratic or procedural processes among elite actors, is also forged in this kind of churn of, of lust and illness and fertility and addiction and greed and impulse and chance and all these other things that we know determine day-to-day -day life. They also share this very high metabolism for archival sources, I think, in the same way that in the Wolf Hall trilogy, you end up with these accounts of Cromwell's life that are kind of fed by kitchen accounts or something, you know, huge noun or lists of ingredients and costs and so on, but those things turned into poetry. In a similar way, I think in the Elroy's novels, you end up with this huge churn of media events, which he's picked up from microfilms of newspapers and kind of spliced together to create this kind of an archival poetry that they both share. Well, talking of sources, we must also say a word about the biography itself before we wrap up. Love Me Fierce in Danger is the name of the book by Stephen Powell. And it sounds like as a biographer, Powell's quite inclined to act as Elroy's defence lawyer. I mean, it doesn't sound like it convinced you that much, Tom, but, but also that it raises questions that you're broadly interested in about literary biography. Is that is that fair? Yeah, Powell's very upfront about this. He says, I think in the first, in the kind of introduction to the book, he says that, you know, when he was just a PhD candidate, he first met Elroy, that Elroy was this amazing dude who like, you know, was way kinder to him than he needed to be and stuff. So he's quite upfront about how much affection he feels towards his subject. I think it does become difficult with some of Elroy's writing because 
a lot of it is very abrasive and he handles racial slurs and epithets very casually. He describes himself as being interested in racial invective as a form of American idiom. And I think that Powell is reluctant to take seriously people's discomfort with that and people's objections to that. And I think that a slightly more complex version of Elroy could have emerged if he was willing to admit that there's some value in those criticisms of Elroy as well. That's interesting. I mean, I'm caught between thinking that some of this is in a way, maybe fair enough isn't exactly the phrase, but maybe fair enough for a first biography, for an authorised biography, but at the same time, that you need that distance you just described, you know, between a potentially dubious biographical subject and a biographer who needs to write about that subject for their own maybe dubious reasons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's an extremely difficult subject to write about in this regard. And so, yeah, for a first-time biography, I think it's a really impressive work overall. And I think you can also tell that there are moments where Powell is clearly discomforted by the material and where he wants to be able to explain charitably while still grappling seriously with what he's handling. So there are these kind of moments where he's especially when it comes to Elroy's behaviour rather than his writing, he's drawn to excusing him somewhat by like understanding Elroy's actions in the context of this traumatised life and of a feeling of youthful alienation and these things as well. Well, I think you've written about it in such fascinating detail in your review, Tom. So, you know, thank you for both the piece and for coming on the podcast today to talk about uh, the dog-mad James Elroy. Thanks. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Cheers. to come on the show i'll be talking to stephen march about his new book on an ever-present and ever-terrifying subject writing and failure and if you have enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online 
you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I'm Alex Clark. If you were listening to this podcast last week, and don't worry if you weren't, because this will work as a recap, you'll remember us talking to Lucasta Miller about the poet Letitia Landon, so celebrated in her day that young women copied out her poems into their commonplace books. Meanwhile, her contemporary John Keats was barely familiar to them. Today, their status is pretty much reversed. But who would we judge the success and who the failure? It's the kind of question that runs through Stephen March's new book on writing and failure, which takes us to the very heart of the question facing all writers. Why do it? Who cares? What do you do if it doesn't work? I'm delighted that Stephen is joining us today to talk about, among other things, writer's block, the idea of genius and madness, hot takes, and what, if we come down to it, does literary success even mean Stephen, hello, you're in Toronto. I am. Pleasure to be with you, Alex. Pleasure to be with you on, as we have pointed out earlier in the show, Valentine's Day. But I have to say that it, you know, the good feelings that one might hope, feelings of love and, and romance that are provoked by that, are not echoed in your book, which, if anything, has one refrain running through it, no whining. Before we think that this book might just be a sort of sop to kind of tender writers' hearts, it isn't. No whining, you say. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of ironic that I would say that since, of course, I am whining. The book is a whine. And, you know, as I say at one point, like every literary essay takes the form of complaint, which I do believe. I mean, I just think that when you look at history and when you begin to understand a bit more about the actual process of building a writer's life, you realize that your problems are actually pretty small and that the other truth is that everyone goes through this. This is the cost of doing business. This is what it means to be a writer and that there's no escape. So, so no whinging, no whining. So back to basics, just tell us about this extended essay. Why did you want to write it? Well, you know, for many years, I kept a sort of common book of, I guess, anecdotes about failures because I found that I found them very comforting. I mean, I know this sounds like a dark book, but I think it's actually, it intends to give solace because these stories did give me solace. I mean, I think people tell you about like writers who struggled and then succeeded the J.K. Rowling myth of her writing on draft paper or whatever. Yeah, you're not, you're not having that, are you? You actually say, no. don't tell me about failures on the way to success. 
Yeah, that's of no interest. Like those stories are not very helpful. Or even, you know, Stephen King, whose on writing is a great book, but like, you know, those aren't the problems that I face or that the people I know who write face, where it's like, what do you do with the hundreds of thousands of dollars flowing in from your movie rights deals? It gave me comfort to know that like James Joyce couldn't get a job at a technical college, even after he'd written Dubliners, or that Herman Melville, you know, he wrote the better book basically every outing he went. And he slowly but surely sold less and less until he ended up, you know, unable to publish and self-publishing Civil War poetry in a zine. For some reason, it's those stories that have always given me comfort. And so I had a bunch of them in my head. And during COVID, I thought, I'm, I'm just going to stitch them all together and I'm going to figure out what connects all these stories of failure. Well, you did. I mean, there's lots and lots of stories. I found this book extremely comforting. It was a sort of form of companionship really I felt from it but you do more than that you are theorizing speculating probing the edges of what this might actually mean what failure might mean to us you do say that you yourself kept note of your own rejections but stopped when you got to 2000 yeah and I mean that was that was in my mid-20s I think one of the things we're you know of living now in a digital age is that we you can accumulate so much more rejection because you can submit so much more widely. I mean, I can bear, I can remember, I can, I can only barely remember, but when people actually used to send physical manuscripts to places with like self-addressed stamped envelopes and get them back, you know, it's very hard to accumulate a lot of rejections that way. But now, you know, I can write for the TLS, right? Which my father-in-law who lived in Toronto could not. So I can get a lot of rejections from the TLS, right? Or, <laughs> or wherever. And so, yeah, I think we're living in an age where, you know, rejection has sort of spread exponentially with the internet. It's sped up. It can be more immediate, as you Exactly. Said. It can be more immediate and it can be more, it can just be a lot more common and more regular part of your life. I have to say that memory of the physical that you've just brought up, the very first review I ever wrote was for the TLS. And I printed it out, of course, and I faxed it. I think from, as we did in those days, a newsagent's shops. And then I didn't really kind of believe that the magic of the facts had worked. Bear with me. And so I walked my copy round to the TLS offices. Wow. Belt and braces. It was such an enormous kind of honour. I thought, what if it just didn't get there? Yeah, I know. Well, I, I mean, my father-in-law, who was a freelancer like forever, I mean, he literally had his newspaper would send him taxi cab chits and he would send the manuscripts of his columns by taxi, you know, to the newspaper. Right. And that meant really he could only be rejected within his city. He probably physically saw the faces of everyone who rejected him. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, I've been rejected by thousands of people that I will never meet physically or know in any other way. It's just a sort of different reality. Well, it kind of begs the question that though, doesn't it? Is it in some way better to see the faces of the people doing the rejection or is there something really sort of psychically overwhelming by the thought of these great disembodied, faceless masses who might be rejecting you? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think, um, I mean, one of the questions of this book is now, is it harder now to be a writer than ever before? Does it just feel that way, right? I sort of have a yes and no answer to that because I think we're kind of first turning to the historical norm. I mean, there has never been a good time to be a writer. I mean, I think that's one of the lessons of this book where you go through all this history and you realize like, 
oh my God, like James Joyce never made a living doing this, right? I mean, you kind of know that, but then on the other hand, you're like, that is ridiculous. Like, you know what I mean? Like that is that is just an insane fact. And the same thing goes for Herman Melville and so on. This is absolutely standard, right? And I don't think our time is worse or better than any other time. It's just different. And I do think the digital stuff just makes it, you're facing more rejection. You're facing more failure. Although, you know, they all faced a lot of failure. I mean, the book was sort of inspired by that George Orwell quote in the epigraph, which is, any life seen from the inside is nothing but a series of defeats. I mean, I just can't stop thinking about that line because it's so true. And, you know, I, I think that's true for everyone now, but it was also true, you know, in the 1920s or the 19th century or, you know, the second century AD. Before we go back through history and this book, which is, you know, it, it's a compact book. It's absolutely stuffed with histories and writers with relative success and failure, largely failure. But very near the beginning, you hinted at the idea that we see failure in a different way. And I was really intrigued by your report of something called FailCon, a mm. conference where people, I mean, this is in a business context rather than a literary one, where people basically yeah. get together to to kind of celebrate their failures. I mean, the idea sounds horrific to me, but there is a, a different sort of attitude towards defeats and failures, isn't there? Well, I mean, you know, what I was responding to there is very specifically the um, tech lord mania for failure, which is actually, the failcon I think started in 2014, but I think it's actually peaking again now. I mean, people in Silicon Valley brag about their failures. I mean, it's it's humble bragging. You know, it's a backhand self-insult, I guess, is the way to put it. But they, they're wrong. Like that version of failure that like, well, I failed at this first company. I did this startup and it didn't work. And that's why, you know, I've changed the world now by X. I mean, it's so transparent, right? It's so transparently, you know, value success over failure. Whereas I think when you read Beckett and he says fail better, he's talking about something different. You know, he's talking about failing with grace and failing with passion. And that's that's a much different, much more powerful idea. I think I think one that resonates a lot more with writers. Absolutely. And well, I might say that, you know, obviously there are enormously costly failures in publishing history, but by and large, mm. when a, a writer doesn't make it, that's very painful and often penury inducing to them, but it doesn't tend to take down many thousands of shareholders, does it? I mean, there's rather sort of less at stake than there well, is. Well, I mean, I think there's some uh, wives and children of, of failed writers that would say it comes at a cost. But yeah, it tends to be, you know, and then the booze, you know, like, and that tends to add to the failure. But yeah, I take your point. This is a private failure. And the writing is, you know, I think that's also the power of failure in writing is that it is sort of between these two privacies, which means that Failure is kind of built into the process. I mean, that's what I found really interesting about writing this book is that, you know, I had all these anecdotes that made me feel better. But then when I really started to think about it, I was like, you know, failure is such an integral part of this process that it's not it's not just the career stuff and it's not just the rejection. It's that when you write, you're throwing out stuff. That's what writing is, really, is throwing out stuff that you've written that you now hate. Right. And getting to, you know, getting to the tiny little fragments that mean something to other people. And it, it's the process itself, that magical leap between privacies, that means that failure is kind of absolutely built into the process in a way that it is in no other activity, if that makes sense. There is just no escape from it. And the number of writers, novelists, perhaps in particular, that one talks to, that I've talked to in the course of interviewing them, who 
say at least that they, they cannot bear their previous work. I mean, they don't look at it. That's gone. That's done. They hope, you know, just to fail in a slightly less dreadful way the next time. I was very intrigued by so many of these anecdotes, but one in particular that stuck with me was that of Samuel Johnson and just this this idea mm. of his failure double. It is something that chimes so much with us. It's sort of the other side of that, you know, don't you hate it when your friends are successful kind of thing. He had a much, much less successful contemporary who he looked to, didn't he, to, to think, well, I'm not doing quite so badly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Savage was, and I mean, I really believe the life of Richard Savage is the best thing Johnson ever wrote. And I mean, I think it's a total masterpiece. I mean, one of those you know, extremely rare work. I mean, one of the greatest works of English prose ever written. But, you know, it, it's so obviously wrong, too. You know, when I read it for this book, I was like, he's so obviously justifying inexcusable behavior, right? And he's taking the side of a fraud, which you don't really think of as Johnson, right? You think of him absolutely as this person who tells the truth about everyone, even his friends. But this one friend who was a complete screw up, you know, like he would borrow money, spend it all on clothes. He was drunk. He had these farcical claims to an aristocratic thing. He killed a guy in a brawl over a seat at a coffee house, which, you know, was entirely his fault. And Johnson excuses it all. Johnson forgives it all. And I think that kind of sense, that companionship in, in loss right, that is so much of, of writerly relationships, it comes across so clearly in that book. If you read it as kind of, instead of the truth as a lie, right? And yeah, I, I found it incredibly moving, actually, to read it again. These pairings, I mean, frequently crop up through history, and indeed in this book, Pound and Elliot, for example, and I recently mm. read Matthew Hollis's biography of The Wasteland, and you're so struck by the detail of how incredibly preeminent and prodigious Pound was and how his yeah. star fell. And he was trying to help Eliot. He was worried not only that Eliot's genius be seen by the public at large, but also that he have the funds to live, that he find places to write, that he is constantly advanced. He is a sort of impresario at a certain stage of his career, Pound. And then it all just falls apart. Now, those sort of arcs of writers' lives are absolutely fascinating. And you are sort of led to think, yeah. well, is there something twinned in these two writers that one has to rise and the other has to fall somehow? Yeah, I mean, I find the case of Pound to be just profoundly mysterious, really. Because, you know, he was so huge. I mean, you really forget that, he, I mean, he was modernism, basically. I mean, it's not just the wasteland, it's he told E. Cummings not to write with uppercase letters. He, you know, he told Hemingway to cut adjectives. He got James Joyce published. I mean, he was, and then his own work, imagism and so on. And then like, he is, he is it really in some, you know, very, a way that I don't think we have any analog to now at all. Like someone who is absolutely at the center of, of literary culture in a, in a totally dominant way. Then, you know, he writes Canto 72, which is about a heroic Italian peasant woman leading Canadian soldiers into a minefield and watching the Canadians blown up. And he just completely loses the plot, right? And then he, he enters a kind of hell, you know, like a Dante-esque hell where the crime is the punishment. And, um, you know, I just found his, 
meeting with Ginsburg and Ginsburg's diaries is like the cruelest thing that could have happened to him, really. I mean, just so, so painful. Tell us what happens. Well, I mean, Ginsburg comes along and Ginsburg is, um, again, a poet that we just don't have any analog for. I mean, Howell sold over a million copies, but Ginsburg's also at the center of fake Western Buddhism, like hipsterism, drug culture. Like he's really at the origin point of this. I mean, he sees Pound and then he, I mean, almost right after he goes and sees John Lennon and Yoko Ono in Montreal recording Give Peace a Chance. I mean, he's really at the center of culture. And then he comes to Pound in, was it Milan? I think it's Milan. And he insists on loving him. Like he insists on saying what a hero he is and spouting all this nonsense to Pound. And I mean, you're talking about Pound who you know, really knows Buddhism and really knows Chinese poetics in a way that Ginsburg would never, you know, never approach. And it must be horrible to meet a parody of yourself, right? It's like he's seeing a version of himself that is totally degraded intellectually, and it's the opposite of everything that he aspired to intellectually. And yet you have to affirm him because, you know, Ginsburg, whatever his flaws, was not a fascist, right? So it's this scenario, which is, you know, you really have to get to the details. Like, I mean, the scene of like Ginsburg playing the Beatles, early Beatles to Ezra Pound and explaining to him how they're just like Beethoven. I mean, what could be worse for Ezra Pound to suffer than that? You do go into in the book this specter of mental disarray, of madness, but you are very interesting about the idea of suffering, as suffering as somehow an indicator of success, a corollary to genius. I mean, you're very sceptical about this, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I really think when you examine literary history, you know, what you see is that there's no thread at all, right? Like, great writers are, they come in all shapes and sizes. I mean, they really do. Like, they come in all different classes, they come in all different races, all different genders, they come in all different forms. You know, some of them are such prudes that they, you know, can't deal with women at all. Some of them are born in whorehouses, right? I mean, they're, they they come from all different walks of life. Some of them travel, some of them never leave the small village where they were born. There's just no pattern. And certainly I don't think suffering is required at all. I don't think suffering ennobles. But on the other hand, you know, there is a part of this where I think resistance is required, right? Where it's like to write something meaningful, you kind of have to feel, they don't want to hear this, but I have to tell them. It's interesting because it's not just the stories of suffering writers that led me to that conclusion. There are plenty of those. But it's also that there are a few writers who get given everything and they stop writing, right? Like Ralph Ellison, which is a, who's a perfect example where, you know, after The Invisible Man, he really could have written anything and it would have been widely acclaimed and sold out. But he couldn't. He couldn't. And then there's other examples like the New Yorker writer who wrote Joe Gould's Secret, who, you know, they called the greatest magazine writer of his age. And, you know, he could never write again. So there does, you know, suffering is not necessary. But on the other hand, I think there is a part of this where perseverance is really a serious virtue. It's required in order to do this. Like it, you have to be persevering in order to make meaning. And sometimes, of course, the suffering, you know, which obviously suffering takes different forms, it exists to different degrees. Sometimes it does provide the material to which a writer can react, can take as, as their subject. I mean, you write about Anna Akhmatova, for example, who in her youth wrote entirely, you know, in a, in a more privileged youth, wrote entirely different kinds of works than yeah. famous, famous Requiem. 
you know, there was a case where it was the suffering actually affected the mode of writing. I mean, it was extraordinary. She couldn't write anything down because the secret police would go through her diaries. And as they'd done for Mandelstrom, that could have, you know, that could have meant the gulag almost immediately. So she ended up, what she would do is invite friends over, make some remark like, isn't it warm today? Then write a line of poetry down, hand it to the friend. The friend would memorize it. And then they would burn the piece of paper on which the poetry was written. And that's how Requiem was written. And you can see why that's like the worst possible way to write something. But it's also the best possible way to write something. Because it it required, and that's why Requiem feels so perfect. I mean, so finished. It's both instantly memorable. It requires oral understanding. Like it has to resonate in the mind. And then it has to be written down perfectly. And it has to be articulated perfectly. So that's a real case where the horror of the purges really gave a form for articulation, right? Gave a way of articulation, which is, you know, as I said, like, I don't, I don't really believe that suffering is necessary to write, but that is a case where the suffering did lead to a whole new approach to writing. I wonder if I could ask you about another writer you've written about before and you go into in some detail in the book, David Foster Wallace, and you make a very mm. interesting point, an interesting suggestion there that the writing that he was engaged in was somehow demanding that suffering of him. Yeah, I mean, I think Foster was a very interesting case because he resisted the mythos of the melancholic artist and the mad artist, even while he did suffer from a great deal of mental illness. Every biography that I've read of him, I think they're all in agreement that when he was on medication, that's when his writing was going well. When he was really suffering with mental illness, that's when the writing collapsed. And the suicide was really about the collapse of the Nardle not working and then him taking off. But I think what's horrible about David Foster Wallace in some ways is that the image of him as a writer is nonetheless shaped exactly by the mythos that he resisted so intensely, right? Like his death in public consumption was entirely this, you know, off-brand mall store rock and roll suicide. And it coincided with the romanticism of the suicidal poets and also with, you know, Club 27, the rock and roll suicides, the Kurt Cobains of this world. So there is a horrible way, and I really do hate the way that, you know, audiences love suicides. And I think it's, um, I think it's gross, but you know, nonetheless, it's, it's sort of one of the facts of this business that readers actually feel that a suicidal artist is more meaningful, that they meant it more or something. And I think that also can't be disputed. Readers really want to see you suffer, you know, <laughs> they do, and they want to see you bleed one way or the other. And, you know, that's not something I have a great deal of affection for, but nonetheless, I think it's pretty true. Well, you do say in the book, you know, the world does not particularly like writers. And I mean, I think you're right. I wonder if it's somehow because they are perceived to be portraying themselves as sort of heroically toiling at this coalface of literature. And in fact, yeah. actually having a rather easier time than anyone who has to, as it might be said, do a proper job. Right. Yeah. It's a hard way to make an easy living. Right. I mean, that's the that's the classic formulation. Yeah. I mean, as we said, like no complaining. Right. Like it is weird that people complain that nobody is willing to buy their feelings. Like, <laughs> why would anyone want to buy your feelings? It's hard to sell phones and people need phones. Right. When people complain about like prizes, it's like you want them to throw you a party because you wrote your feelings down on paper and people read it. I mean, it's very. Oh my God, Stephen, you put it like that and I totally see what you mean. I'm going off yeah. writers as well. 
Well, I think, you know, there are also people feel the danger of writers for sure. I mean, you know, when I travel, I put down novelist and, as my occupation on my passport, because if you put down journalist, I mean, you can be pulled off and have a long talking to by a lot of people in a lot of different countries. I think the persecution of people like Akhmatova actually shows like people fear this. People fear people who can make meaning out of things. And they're not wrong to. There is a sort of real subterranean power for that. I mean, it's not the way the persecutors think it works, but nonetheless, it's real. I think that is true. The world doesn't like writers. I mean, it, I, I don't think it ever has. I, and it probably it doesn't look like it's going to start. Well, you know, before we go and riffle through our rejection files again, I will leave everybody with this wonderful line from your book. There is no promised land. There is only exile. So it seems to me we might as well embrace the exile. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that is the message of the book is that, you know, this is the cost of doing business. So if you want to write, you have to persevere. Stephen, I enjoyed it so much. As I said, a kind of comforting and companionable sort of book, but the stories were so interesting. You have succeeded. There we are. I will say it to you. What a writer <laughs> does moment. with success is a whole different story. But thank you so much for coming and telling us about on writing and failure. We really appreciate it. Pleasure, Alan. time for this week our thanks go to tom seymour evans and stephen march thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from michael keynes and from me goodbye <laughs> <laughs>